Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Orwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. This week's show, we have an interview with James Raggi, author of Lamentations of the Flame Princess, the subject of our last show. Yeah, yeah. If you listen to the last episode, we went into it in, in quite a lot of detail. Well, actually, we went into it in quite a lot of detail, even if you didn't listen to the last episode, but... Yeah, but it was originally our intention to combine the interview as part of last episode. You can guess what happened with the interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, to be fair, we spent quite a lot of time talking about the game as well. But then, yes, we interviewed James, and James talks even more than we do. Hmm. I mean, this but it's is considerably more interesting, I think. <laughs> yes, I mean, this is a long interview, but it's not a dull interview. Yeah, because when I came to thinking about cutting it down, yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't too much to cut out. Apart from a, 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 a small excerpt at the end, which I can't even begin to... To mention. There are things that man was not meant to know. <laughs> so that bit will almost, well, without doubt, will we cut off. Oh, we, we could always just offer it as a, as a special ringtone download to, <laughs> to certain subscribers. I think that's what you were threatening to use it as anyway, weren't yep. you? <laughs> what, to pay James's legal fees? <laughs> <laughs> to pay our legal fees if we put it out. Okay. Yeah, don't ask what it is. We won't say. <laughs> but before the interview, let's have... And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. Accursed. An adjective. Under or subject to a curse. Or doomed. Have to resist the urge to suddenly uh, <laughs> just spring into a Scottish accent, going, We're doomed! Doomed! <laughs> it's what Lovecraft would have wanted. Yeah, I can see his corpse rocking back and forth in his coffin already. <laughs> no, that's just on the fucking plush Cthulhu's you bought, Matt. <laughs> just me. <laughs> and of course, uh, number two pre nominal, hateful, detestable, execrable. Very much like your opinion of <laughs> Plush Cthulhu's. <laughs> of which at least I was rather glad that one of the projects I recently backed scraped in just funded for Recall of Cthulhu. Guess what I get as an add-on? What do you get, Matt? My, my undying hatred? God, it may be. It is another plush. Is it? Yeah. A, another plush Cthulhu. Yeah. You can't have too many of those, can you? No, I've, got, I've, I've got the Toy Vault versions now. I'll have another Toy Vault version that they did uh, with this one. Uh, some custom-made ones, crochet what, what ones. Is the, uh, what is the what? What's this one you're getting now? Of oh, it's one that was done by Toy Vault, not their ordinary uh, no, of ones that not. they did, but one that was specifically designed as very much a kids, uh, baby-friendly version. Has anyone got round to doing any Cthulhu tea cozies yet? Oh, well, I've got oh, a, a market. Well, I've got a, I've got a. Um, what they call it, um, ski mask. That could easily be used as a tea cosy. Yeah, there you go. That, that's the one gap in the market that's not really been filled yet. So if anyone out there is listening and, and wants to do a Cthulhu tea cosy, 
please, please, please consider suicide. <laughs> well, I, I drink lots of tea, I'd buy them. Accursed was one of Lovecraft's more frequently used adjectives. Uh, he used it, uh, I counted, 76 times throughout his main fiction. Uh, which, you know, after all the the more famous words that we've talked about recently, which he hardly ever actually used at all, this time here's one that you don't necessarily associate with him so much that he actually used the whole bloody time. <laughs> and to start us off, here's a quote from the statement of Randolph Carter. It was the end of my experience, and is the end of my story. I heard it, and knew no more. Heard it as I sat petrified in that unknown cemetery in the hollow, amidst the crumbling stones and the falling tombs, the rank vegetation and the miasmal vapours. Heard it well up from the innermost depths of that damnable open sepulchre as I watched amorphous, necrophagous shadows dance beneath an accursed waning moon. And from The Hound... Our quest for novel scenes and piquant conditions was feverish and insatiate. Sinjin was always the leader, and he it was who led the way at last to that mocking, that accursed spot which brought us our hideous and inevitable doom. Check this out. <sighs> He's gone all intellectual on us. You've embraced middle age, have you? <laughs> Everything's in HD now. <laughs> well, it's, it's about a foot from my eyes. It's like, wow, I have spectacles. It's, it's, it's like having two magnifying glasses bolted to your face. It is. <laughs> this is my first day. Oh, and I'm holding the paper. I now realise that for years it's just been variations of blur. Because <laughs> this is like, I don't know, it's so crisp. <laughs> it's weird. And lastly, from the dream quest of unknown Kadath. Onward, unswerving and relentless, and tittering hilariously to watch the chuckling and hysterics into which the siren song of night and the spheres had turned, that eldritch scaly monster bore its helpless rider. Hurtling and shooting, cleaving the uttermost rim and spanning the outermost abysses, leaving behind the stars and the realms of matter, and darting meteor-like through stark formlessness toward those inconceivable, unlighted chambers beyond time, wherein black Azathoth gnaws shapeless and ravenous amidst the muffled, maddening beat of vile drums and the thin, monotonous whine of accursed flutes. And now, moving on to the main event, we have our interview with James Raggi. This interview does go on for a bit, but as we said earlier, it is all good stuff. I, James is a very, very entertaining interviewee, and I, I think we got, what, a little over an hour's worth of material. Well, we're joined now by James Raji, author of Lamentations of the Flame Princess and, and publisher of the Lamentations of the Flame Princess uh, imprint. So welcome, James. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for coming on. Uh, we're doing this a bit out of order, uh, so we haven't actually recorded the show this goes into yet, uh, which means that any questions that may have come up during the uh, during our normal discussion, well, we don't know what they are yet. So <laughs> let, let's let's see where this takes us. Okay. I, now let, let's start with the obvious question. I'm sure you've been asked this 
loads of times before, and I know, you know I've seen comments about this online or you, know, you answering it in different forms before. But you know, where, where does Lamentations of the Flame Princess come from? I, I, I know you used it as, what was it, the title of a, a heavy metal fanzine you used to use. So, yes. So, so, so how did that evolve into a role-playing game? Well, I'd spent so much time publishing under that name that when I decided to start writing and publishing role-playing material, I didn't see any reason to change the name. It was That's how I publish. Uh, you know, I suppose if I start directing movies, it'll be Lamentations of the Flame Princess film productions and you know, all that lovely stuff. But but is there any other link between the the zine and what you used to do and uh, and the role playing game? Uh, attitude. Um, I think a lot of my heavy metal proclivities shine through in the role playing stuff as well. But yeah, I would. Yeah. Um, yeah, writing to antagonize the reader. Uh, Writing as a reaction, writing and publishing as a reaction to the other similar types of media in the scene that I can't stand, uh, and and you know taking a stand to do something different, and you know sticking the tongue out at the people who are doing the stuff I don't like. Okay, um, but. Is there an aesthetic as well that, I mean, apart from that, I mean, an aesthetic or an artistic uh, vision or whatever that carried forward from the heavy metal side of things into uh, into the role-playing game as well? Uh, not really, because the, the fanzine was, was standard interviews and reviews. Uh, the interviews, I think, went a bit more in-depth because I did absolutely no editing on them. So if I had a three-hour conversation with a musician, there would be three hours of conversation in print. And I did pretty much all the layout myself, uh, and it looked like crap. I remember putting out, what was it, an 80-page or 90-page newsprint fanzine with six-point font. <laughs> wow. Because I just wanted to pack in as much as I possibly could. <laughs> Instead of you know being intelligent and realizing I had three or four issues worth of material there, I just blew it all in one issue, and yeah, <laughs> the, the the sense of uh, good enough is not good enough, even if I'm not good enough to do what I want to do. If that makes any sense, I, I will mm-hmm. overreach and overextend. And hopefully, even if I can't possibly do what I ideally want to do, my effort in going there will still result in something worthwhile. So, James, can I ask, was that in the kind of early 2000s that you were doing the the heavy metal fanzine? Heavy metal fanzine, I believe, the first issue was in 1998. Okay, and, I mean, you talk about the Lamentations being a sound like it's kind of a kickback against some of the things you don't like in role-playing. That wasn't reflected in the heavy metal fanzine when you were just a fan of heavy metal music. Well, that was fanzine. that was uh, reflected then because there's lots of music out there I don't like that's popular and gets put on the cover of glossy magazines. Mm-hmm. And I, there were other fanzines that were covering stuff that I thought was ridiculous. So how I approached what I covered, you know, that, that was reflected in the thing. It it did reflect what I didn't like 
mm-hmm. and my expression of the dislike for things I read in other magazines, of course. You know, that introduces flaws that are all my own, but it mm-hmm. it was at least I think my readers we're not getting the sense of, oh, it's all one big happy family and it's all interchangeable. You know, we're just reading about these bands here and those bands there. It, there, there was a lot of commentary, you know, about how other fanzines and other glossy magazines approach their, approach their subject. I mean, are are those kind of fanzines still around? Are those kind of paper fanzines for music and so on? I mean, I'm, I'm not, you know... I don't know because when the the whole download MP3s and everything really took off, I started to retreat from from the conversation because for some reason it really annoys me the idea that someone's going to download an album. Probably not Listen download an album. Once. Probably just download no. a track. No, I, I. That's even more annoying, isn't it? Yeah, and then they'll. You know, here's their judgment on this, and it, it it's a thing. And so, I really don't talk online with actual metalheads that are online to talk about metal. It's something that I'll talk about a bit on my Google Plus, but I'm mainly facing a role playing audience right now. Sure, so I'm sure. trying to introduce people that don't give a shit about heavy metal to heavy metal because it's really tiresome to get into an online argument about someone that just likes different bands and yeah and so yeah i I don't do that anymore can i take you back a step scott asked where the name lamentations of the flame princess came from and we we've we've uh we've traced it back to the fanzine for the music but where did it come from for the fanzine for the music okay uh well this is somewhat of an embarrassing story but is it anything to do with conan no Oh, I thought it was. <laughs> uh, well, I wanted a name that would more reflect the kind of music I liked at the time. Uh, you know, in the U.S., uh, the, the brutal death metal was popular for fanzines and you know, and the metal scene in general. And you know, the the black metal was a big deal, so everything was either guts and brutality. But I liked the the at the time, weirder European bands, Opeth and Catatonia and My Dying Bride, that that had more flowery kind of lyrics and song titles. So I wanted something that would fit in with that kind of scene. Uh, now, the actual Flame Princess, this is the embarrassing story that I, I've told a few times. But basically, in the early days of the World Wide Web, when bands would link to absolutely any page any individual person's page that mentioned liking them as a band. Uh, I was still living in the U.S. at the time. I came across this uh, Finnish woman's website, and I you know, had absolutely no exposure to people dressing up in period costume or anything. And this woman had all these pictures, you know, dressed up in period costume. She had long red hair down to her ass, and it was just the most amazing person I had ever seen. And the contact link, it was must have already been an old website because the email contact link was broken by then. And so I just invented this entire mythology in my head based on these person's pictures. And yeah, this person also very much did not appreciate it once I caught up with them a few years later. 
Oh dear. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I mean, that's that's still the same character that appears on on the cover of the game and and in a lot of the artwork, isn't it? No, no, not really. Uh, I think uh, this woman was just going for a more gothic kind of imagery. It, it wasn't action. It wasn't swords or anything. It's just the idea of the uh, of the flame princess was just a lyrical idea back in the metal zine days and didn't really form into a solid character in my mind until I was thinking role playing what am I going to do with in- illustrations and things like that okay well actually that makes for a fairly organic segue there which is what then made you take the leap uh, from publishing a heavy metal fanzine to publishing role playing games Oh, um, well, uh, when I was a little kid into comic books, I would make my own comic books and sell them to the neighborhood kids, you know, made on photocopy machines. Uh, I just like writing and showing stuff to people. And yeah, uh, the metal fanzine thing, it, I mean, that lasted a while, but it became really, really difficult because I can't actually play any instruments. I'm not participating in the activity I'm writing about. So I came to think of myself more of a parasite on the scene rather than someone that was doing anything for anyone. So, you know, I'm thinking that, oh, I'm oh so clever and I can review things this way and that way. And it, you know, eventually just didn't feel like it mattered anymore. Uh, Role-playing... I can do the thing, (laughs) Mm. and and that that makes a hell of a difference. And also, uh, role-playing, there's, and not to mention, I want to say in the fanzine world, the things that I like to do and the things in the way I wanted to write and how that changed over the years, other people were doing it that way, but much better. Uh, Chris Maycock with the metal fanzine, especially the Istin fanzine out of Finland, uh, you know, once I read those, it was just like, oh, fuck, I'm just a really weak pretender here. And, you know, I could try to improve and try to, you know, but I would never be as good as them. Uh, with role-playing, uh, there, there seem to be a lot of blind spots in in what people produce for role-playing, what the, what the larger companies are putting out for role-playing. So there, there's a much... Uh, much wide open much more wide open space for me to move in you know find myself in in what i want to do and then excel at it and then have people say that's my favorite game that's my favorite adventure i can i I can be somebody in role playing in a way i could never really be in the heavy metal scene hmm yeah no no I, i definitely understand that Right, and and you you moved into this what about was this five or six years ago or longer ago than that? Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember. I got officially I got started July of 2009. I I had done some more amateurish kind of stuff previously. Had, had started to get into it before I was really ready to get into it, but my first actual role-playing thing that that I put up for sale was in 2008, the original edition of the Random Esoteric Creature Generator for classic role-playing games in their modern simulacra. Oh, yes. I had done a, yeah, I had done a uh, 
you know, self-published version of that, which was just going down to the copy shop and having photocopies done. And I sent that around to all the people that were publishing old school kind of stuff at the time. And Goodman Games was one of them, and they wanted to pick it up for actual put-it-in-stores kind of thing. And I thought that was cool. There had to be some changes made because my version had all the, you know, had nudity on the cover and lots of swearing inside. And so they took that out. Uh, but yeah, I, my, the first thing I ever wrote and completed for role-playing uh, publication actually got picked up by a bigger publisher and put in stores all over the world. And I was like, okay, that's a good start. And this all corresponded roughly with the uh, the rise to prominence of the OSR movement. Uh, I mean, was that a conscious thing on your part to get involved with, you know, what what was actually a sort of growing scene in role playing, or was it just serendipity? Um, well, Dungeons and Dragons was the game I always came back to. I mean, it's the game I started with, and then I'd play other games all the time, and I'd end up back with Dungeons and Dragons. There was something about Probably with it being the first, and I was a really awful, nerdy kid that no one would ever want to be around, where all those tables from the first edition Dungeon Master's Guide, all the saving throw tables, the hit table, I had all that memorized when I was a kid. And just just useless information to have stuck in your head. So... You know, as the years came on, as the years went on, and I, I would think in terms of D and D in the early two thousands, I thought I was going to create my own absolutely unique system and started from scratch. And it was only after deciding to do that that I found out that oh, people talk about role playing games on the internet. Well, that's interesting because uh, <laughs> I had no idea. Uh, and, and I I remember uh, you know going to the Forge, and the Forge was helping people make role-playing games, and people mm. would ask questions like, well, what's the game about? Like, what do you mean, what's the game about? Games aren't about anything. That's silly. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, but the game that I was wanting to make originally was sub GURPS kind of generic thing that was going to be used for, you know, darker medieval fantasy, and I got to the point where I made a basic copy of the rules and sent that out to some, you know, random people for play test. And it was, eh. So I don't even know if I have any copies of that anywhere anymore. Uh, so, yeah. And then uh, there was really no regular gaming going on for a long time in my life from the 90s through the early 2000s. I would try to get involved in games and it would just be a session or two here and there. Uh, and it wasn't until, uh, when was it? Uh, early 2006, I just moved to Finland and decided to hell with this. I'm going to start a game. And I decided I was going to do advanced dungeons and dragons first edition by the book. And of course I couldn't think to do this before I actually came to Finland, but I actually bought up all the books again on eBay, having them shipped to Finland and I just started putting up flyers in the grocery store bill, uh, bulletin boards and things like that. And suddenly I had, what was it, 10 or 11 people, was it? Is that right? Or was it 9 or 11, one of the two, that wow. were in the kitchen every week playing this damn game. And the, the buy the book thing went away awful quick. Uh, 
but it was still trying to be just like D&D as it was meant to be, like it was in the 70s. And doing that for a long time, that real education, in addition to being back into gaming and doing it every week with all these different people, and you know, got, getting back into learning what works, what doesn't, what do I want to do, what don't I want to do. And then after that, what did I play for a little bit? Played some champions for a little bit, but then when it came to publishing, it was, of course, going to be D&D based. But then, you know, as uh, you know, when I first got into the publishing, it was very D&D as standard. But of course, as I've gone on now, it's drifting. Yes, yeah, it's it's done so in in several interesting ways. In fact, yeah, you know, the the next question I was going to ask you was, what do you think actually uh, sets Lamentations of the Flame Princess aside from the rest of the OSR movement? And it seems to be the standout game of the OSR for a lot of people. And so, obviously, you've, you've tapped into something. What what is it specifically? Do you think that that you've done differently and that that makes it special? It's really just got to be the attitude, because as of right now, the, the actual mechanics and rules really aren't that different at all. But, you know, if you just look at the rule book and people will download the free rules version with no art, and they don't see what's different at all. But the people that actually like Lamentations, the people that are waiting for the books, they definitely see that it's different. It's it's really the attitude and focus and it's in the adventures and supplements more than just the rules. I think that goes back to the old question that I ran into over 10 years ago. Now, what is this game about? Well, the game itself isn't about much, but it allows all these other things, which are individually about very different things than what most people role play about. Now, of course you guys with, you know, your horror focus, you're, you're presumably more sympathetic to my goals, but there are a lot of people out there that don't play with any sort of uh, horror focus in mind. Or if they do, it's very superficial that they're going for the trappings of horror without actually playing a horror game. And to actually do that in a D&D adventure framework uh, really... Uh, it really uh, speaks to people for good and ill, depending you know, depending on the person. But I've never been much of a fan of previous official D and D horror attempts. And I thought Ravenloft was just ridiculous. Never liked it. Uh, you know, and that's probably the the most uh, explicit. This is supposed to be horror D and D. I think when I first read uh, Lamentations a few years ago, the, the rule book, my impression was kind of like what you described. I, I read it and thought, well, isn't this just old, you know, old school D&D? What, what's really different about it? But to me, I don't know how you feel, but to me, the the, the difference comes through in the in the scenarios and in yeah. the feel of the actual game rather than in the in the rule book. I didn't pick up on that so much in the rule book. Would you say it's more in the in the scenarios that that tone comes through? Yes, and you know that. Well, it drives me nuts a bit because everybody in role playing thinks the game is in the rules, and there are people that use the Lamentations rules for not Lamentation style gaming because it is just a rule set. It, it it's got a few things in the magic that you know kind of bake in some strangeness, but otherwise it's just a rule set. It's there to 
you know, it's there as the background framework for all the wild stuff you want to do. And if you put the wild stuff into the rules, it's not wild. It becomes background framework. So all the cool stuff, you don't want to be background framework, so you don't bake them into the rules. That That's how I look at it anyway. But of course, uh, you know, the rest of the role-playing world thinks differently, so, you know, <laughs> there's a problem. <laughs> I was going to say, the, the one thing I picked up in the rulebook that definitely helps to set the tone is, as you said there, the magic section. Because we, we've had a lot of chaos around the table with one particular level one spell. Oh, fucking summon. summon. You obviously had quite a lot of fun putting summon into the game. I, was that a, a, a deliberate attempt just to throw a, a monkey wrench into the works? Of well, D&D? good. It's supposed to. It's, it's supposed to be. Yeah, it's really something you cannot predict what will happen. And a first level spell can at any time, if you cast it, end the campaign world it's there and possible <laughs> the next version of lamentations there, there is going to be more uh, tinkering and fooling around i want to let everyone know it's going to be fully backwards compatible sort of but the magic system is going to be the big change because i'm going to move to all spells are first level so there's uh because the way Lamentations games works, people note that you really don't get to higher levels all that often. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the old school framework is a very slow, you know, ascent in levels anyway. And Lamentations, you uh, uh, die a lot. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> yes. So uh, having the this giant spell list of, you know, of, by definition, if you have 20 spells or whatever per level, no one's ever going to get to use all the higher level spells. They're just taking up space. It's just there because it's a D&D clone game. And so how do you fix that? How do you put all of that stuff in play? Well, you're going to put it, make them all first level and have the power scale depending on the level of the caster. And that'll have a whole lot more side effects because I've been using that in my home game for a while, doing it more ad hoc. But it's going to introduce casting failure and a few other things without hopefully adding any more complexity. But there's going to be no more, you know, this spell is this level, so I won't be able to use it until I'm a ninth level character. And all of that goes away, and your first level character can potentially have any spell that exists in the game. So, so basically what you're saying is that in the new version of the rules, you can cast Fairy Fire and end the campaign world? No, no. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think I'm going to put end the campaign results in every single spell. That, <laughs> that, that may be a mercy. That, that would be a bit much. Uh, there, there still are going to be some fun ones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I, I do want people to actually continue to play the game. Uh, I, I may put these chaos bombs in there, but the, the idea is not, you know, it, it's, it, it's not like playing a board game where you flip the, okay, the game ends card. Uh, the, the game is designed <laughs> for continued ongoing use. There are just little tricks in there to make people a little bit afraid. But 
I mean, along those lines, just just as an aside, was it a very deliberate thing on your part in the uh, the referee's book in uh, the box set that you put out uh, that the example of play in there has a TPK in it? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> everybody, everybody that does an example of play, it's this idealized. Everyone's all yay, and this guy, how much fun this game can be. I. You know, so my example of play ends in a TPK. There's that one asshole player that's in <laughs> every group. It, this is, I wanted it to look like an actual game played by actual people. Mm, yeah, it, it very definitely is that. I know. I, I love that example of play. It's, it's my favorite in any RPG I've seen. Uh th- so I mean, you, you've talked a little bit about the, you know, the, the the mechanical bits you're heading towards and um, the sort of aesthetics. And I just want to let like. everyone know this is at the very least a year away from seeing print. I'll have a playtest oh. document out sooner than that, but a lot of the my ideas haven't been introduced into actual play yet. So I'm just completely talking out of turn for stuff that may actually never happen if it turns out to not work. So. <laughs> oh, cool. put that out there okay but i the, the other thing that really seems to set lamentations aside from uh other D games that i've played is the fact that uh, less in the actual core book and more in the supplements uh that you've published that you've gone for this uh creating this this pseudo historical 17th century europe setting uh mm. that i mean it, it's not like a lot of games where it just seems to have the trappings of um uh of a historical setting but you know you've actually um you've actually gone out of your way to make it a historical setting just albeit one with magic yeah um so i mean you you hinted uh i think when you were talking about the original uh, game you were developing that even then you were interested in doing a, a sort of medieval fantasy game was this always your goal uh with lamentations to 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 create this this pseudo historical game uh no it, it wasn't actually uh cuz even the first things published under the lamentations of the flame princess name had the elves had the dwarves and that's even still in the core book that's out right now uh, even though I haven't used them in my home games in years, that's more a that's more a nod to help people, you know, with compatibility with their home games, which usually do have all those things. No, it, it's just once you're doing something, especially in a crowded market, and you're deciding that okay, I, I am going to be a commercial entity in this market, and it's it's. Early on, your stuff is going to be more similar than not to other people. I think you need to. You're going to have the bits that you think are different, but you know you're. Yeah, you have to find your feet before you start running off. And so it was a very D and D kind of assumption, and that runs into the whole problem I, I ended up having with Dungeons and Dungeons and Dragons as mechanical framework and Dungeons and Dragons as content. And as I was writing stuff and playing games and trying to do different things, I realized that in most people's minds, the content of the game and the mechanical features of the game are inseparable. 
that they don't think of games in terms of, of uh, you know, you have your rules and then you have the game, which is what you do with the rules. I mean, I know there are some generic systems out there, but even even when you have, uh, oh, how do I say this so it doesn't sound like I'm talking out my ass? Um, for example, you have GURPS as a rules system, but if you're playing, you know, the, the World War II GURPS, you're not thinking that as a separate thing from the GURPS rules. Right. Yeah, uh, and and I guess, uh, yeah. Well I, well, I guess from the Call of Cthulhu side, I guess that there, you know, you've got your basic role-playing system, and I guess the people playing, you know, Stormbringer are thinking of that as a separate thing from, say, Call of Cthulhu. So maybe I am talking about my ass a bit, but that... Uh... <laughs> well, it, I mean, yeah. it does strike me that, I mean, you're talking about putting out a new iteration of the rules later on. I think you've mentioned elsewhere uh, that you're going to be dropping things like elves and dwarves oh, and yeah. halflings and clerics and so on from there. Yes, and that all goes. Uh, because now, now, back to your previous question and getting to a point... Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I realized that what I wanted to do as I was doing it is not just keep making stuff for a generic Dungeons and Dragons setting. That that I had ideas that I thought would be neat that coincided with my other interests, and that basically it 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 started with the fact that Dungeons Dungeons and Dragons quote unquote medieval fantasy isn't really medieval. It does not look like or resemble actual European real-world Middle Ages at all. Mm. And that what it most resembles in how people set up their worlds and how people play their characters is the more early modern setting. When people are, you know, when it comes to economics and nation-states and... You know, even, you know, science and the Enlightenment and how people look at the world, it's not medieval. So before I moved my home game to Earth, I, you know, it was resembling more and more this, you know, 1500s, 1600s uh, Europe. And, you know, I just decided to hell with it. Let's just go for it. Instead of me making up the thing that's sort of like England... I'll use England. I'll use France. I'll and you know just cut out the middleman and trying to make the Knights Templar that aren't the Knights Templar, but wink, wink. That's how you should understand them. You know to mix my historic things <laughs> even more there, but uh, yeah, but that that's how it came about. And then I just decided I'm actually interested in this time period. And as far as setting source books. There are hundreds of books on the subject. So it, it, it seemed to be, I don't know, just easier to do that than to make up a proprietary setting and or to just make generic adventures that don't tie into anything ever. That's limiting as well. So, yeah, it, it was basically just the same way I decided to do more heavy metal and horror movie artwork. I'm interested in this. Why do I have a game that's outside of that interest when I could just incorporate it in there and do something that's really unique. 
Mm. No, no, that's that seems like that seems like something that you know in retrospect is very obvious, and you know I I, I agree more people should be doing that. Uh, and uh, when it comes to a, and if I think of Lamentations as a horror game, and if you want absolute horror baked into the setting, fifteen to sixteen hundreds is just you could have absolutely no supernatural involvement at all. And it is a horror show, top to bottom, everywhere in the world. It's, <laughs> it's amazing that way. Oh, yes. I mean, it's probably, uh, now I'm sure people will argue this and that, but if you want large-scale, real-world people just being complete assholes to each other for no real reason, that time period is amazing. Any history book is just a history of atrocity. Mm. There's, that's what it is. <laughs> it's amazing. Something. Mm. Oh, okay. Uh, religious strife. Oh, look, slave trade. Oh, look, wiping out the uh, entire indigenous populations of continents. I mean, if you want to feel bad, this is the time period for you. <laughs> even if you're, you know, upper class, the people doing all this shit. Well, you still have the plague. You still have popular uprisings. You still, have, I mean, there, there is just no escape from the hell that is this time period. Nice. Yeah, that makes it perfect. But I mean, you said that yeah, you, know, you could take all the supernatural elements out and it would still be horrific. But obviously, you know that. The Lamentations supplements are absolutely rife with supernatural elements. So, uh, what kind of what kind of influences have you taken? What, what's what's influenced you in those horrific elements? Well, I, I know you're a big fan of weird fiction in general. Uh, are there any specific touchstones that you drew on? Uh, I liked the idea of uh, the ex. Well, Everyone talks that H.P. Lovecraft is, you know, he writes basically about the uncaring universe. But of course, he exaggerates it, so it's not an uncaring universe. It's a hostile universe. You know, that, that it's basically an exaggeration of, of what he thought the universe was like. And I, I think that's a brilliant place to start. You have a hostile universe. You have all, you know, assume alien hostile well alien consciousness and alien entities who just don't care about humanity at all and how does that interact with people and and you do it do that in the context of of an adventure game and so you have people that are motivated to go into the deep dark places and check out forbidden things and they want to touch all the magical stuff and so it's uh, very easy to incorporate that and have an excuse for that to happen in the game. And also an excuse of why this isn't everywhere in the setting, because most people don't do this stuff. Mm. Is that answering your question? Or yes. I yeah, I think, so. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I think so. I mean, apart from Lovecraft, are there any particular um, fictional influences that um, that have fired up Lamentations? Yeah. Now, this is odd because I really don't like a lot of brutal death metal uh, that, that just sing about body parts and gore and zombies. I don't listen to that a lot, but the imagery involved 
you know, all the album covers and what the lyrics are describing in this, this, uh, yeah, I, I think that's very powerful imagery and obviously, uh, you know, in our entertainment, you, you know, it, it's very sanitized. The difference between a PG, th- a PG 13 action movie to use U S ratings terms and a movie that has to be edited down just to even be able to be a rated R and get shown in theaters is just blood. Uh, mm. You know, PG-13 action, you know, has people getting killed left and right and just violence, just incredible violence. But it's largely bloodless, so it's okay. Uh, once you just add in the blood that would be there, then it just becomes... You know, people can't stand it. They can't cope with it. They don't want to deal with it. And so, and a lot of the brutal death metal imagery, it's all about that stuff. Uh, and Cannibal Corpse is the easy go-to because they, they've, uh, you know, they actually achieved some success and they've made a living, you know, for 25 years now or however long it's been. You know, and they, you know, they... They made their reputation on songs like Necropedophile, which is very, very explicit about digging up dead kids and fucking them. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, and then also, as far as the Im- imagery, early Clive Barker stuff, the Books of Blood. Oh, yes. I mean, that. yeah, that, that stuff is just incredible. And there's a lot of stuff that's, that's very gameable, but it's just soaked in this awful, awful imagery that I think is just awesome. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, and, and then as time goes on and, and I, you know, turn into a mature horror fan and, you know, I run into things like Cannibal Holocaust and I spit on your grave and stuff that's really powerful and affecting. It's not a fun horror time. It's stuff that's actually messed up really messed up and didn't have to go through the U S distribution system to get hacked all to hell. Uh, you know, um, and as time goes on, even stuff that I've run into after starting publishing greatly affects me. Uh, I had never read the Grant Morrison doom patrol stuff until after I'd already started publishing and lamentations was a going RPG concern. But that stuff is just strange. I mean, it doesn't go for the gore and horror, but it the the, the surreal qualities of it. It's very weird and strange. Oh, and so, deeply unsettling at times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and then you have stuff like uh, bizarro fiction, uh, stuff like Eraserhead Press and you know, Deadite Press, and and all those, which are just absolutely strange and surreal and bizarre, but also with a lot of the horror movie gore and genital ripping and everything like that. in a lot of the titles, uh, I highly, highly recommend the book genital grinder and I haven't read it in a couple of years now, but I believe the author is Ryan Harding. Uh, let me just double check that. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes, Genital Grinder by Ryan Harding. It is available on Amazon. It is just absolutely 
jaw-dropping. I cannot believe someone wrote this. I can't believe someone got this published. This is the greatest thing in the history of the world. <laughs> it is about basically what if Beavis and Butthead were violent sexual deviants. Okay. I, I, I shall have to check that out. <laughs> yes, it was, uh, yeah, and I, I just absolutely, and apparently the book came about because horror authors have gross-out contests, you know, after hours, after conventions, and, you know, this is the gross-out stuff this guy came up with, and it's stuff that, I, I, it, it's fascinating. The, I have a hard time reading a lot of weird fiction or, or weird horror fiction these days, Um you know, I like Lovecraft, I like Ligotti, and not much else. I mean, I, I used to collect every anthology of the new weird and Lovecraft's new circle and you know, anything that, you know, Black Wings of Cthulhu and anything that promised new stuff in that vein. It's just kind of boring and doesn't have that magic. There was something about the old style of the people that were writing in the 20s and 30s with all of their particular quirks and attitudes that really, you know, that it, it, it really takes you to this other place mentally. And, the, you know, Lagarde is contemporary, but mm. he's not all there in the head as far <laughs> as being a normal citizen either. Uh, and, Reading a lot of modern modern horror fiction, I get the feeling that these are, you know, intelligent writer type people that are writing about bad things, and it just seems kind of fake. But when you get someone like Ligotti, who's obviously got something different going on in his head, or all of these, uh, or all these bizarro writers that that aren't afraid to write a series of novels about different William Shatner characters coming together to save the world. It's like there's no filter there. You're getting someone's really unpleasant, strange imagination, and there it is, and that's just so exciting. And that's what I try to do with my writing and what I do and what I try to encourage in the writers that I work with, you know, because uh, it is to just go crazy, be different, you know, the. Everybody comes to me with stuff that's very Dungeons and Dragons because mechanically that's where the game lies. Mm. But the first thing I need, you know, I try to convince them is anything that looks like it could be in a Dungeons and Dragons adventure from TSR, strip that out. <laughs> strip it out. Here's your idea. Here's the, the, the cool stuff. Build around that and you know, customize all of these, all of the D and D bits, the recognizable D and D bits you threw in there, throw that out and make custom versions that match what you've done here. And that works, you know, uh, how well that works depends on author to author, but I'm basically don't want to publish anything that could be mistaken for an actual D and D adventure. <laughs> uh, even though, even though uh, you could take my stuff, and somehow, I mean, people—I've been told that people use lamentation stuff with fourth edition D and D, and I would never, ever claim that sort of compatibility. But people do it. Uh, you know, people have used my stuff with Call of Cthulhu and all sorts of other games, and I think it helps if you're not attaching it because there. 
I know I'm rambling again, and I'm dealing with a couple of products that are in, you know, things in production right now. I'm dealing with this, so I'm just kind of venting now. <laughs> but people that are writing to the rules instead of writing to their idea and letting the rules act as an independent resolution on their, yeah, you know, independent resolution method on their adventure. It, it, it it's really tough because I lose people and I lose projects because they're wanting to do just a kind of strange D and D and I'm wanting to do something. You know, my stuff is at this point, I see it in my head as just coincidentally attached to D and D. Does that make any sense? Do yeah, you it does. See it yeah. That way? Yeah. I, I, I think it certainly evolved that way and, and I can see it, you know, particularly with the, the stuff you published recently, um, which actually leads me very organically onto the, the next question, uh, which is, you know, how do you think, you know, how, what's your explanation for how successful Lamentations is becoming in comparatively a short period of time? Because I, I think I first, became aware of you, you know, about four or five years ago at Dragon Meat when mm-hmm. you had you had a stall there with you know the uh, the deluxe edition of the game and I think you know one or two uh, supplements and you know fr- from from that point onwards within five years uh, you've gone to the stage where one of the books you published um, Zach Smith's Red and Pleasant Land won four Ennies this year yeah so, well I mean that, that, that's pretty meteoric. Is it? I, I'm thinking that you know my lack of discipline as a conscientious, I will write 5,000 words every day no matter what writer and delays I have with artists. I mean, I'm seeing this as a slow snail's crawl, that the, the success I had in 2015 should have happened in like 2011. <laughs> <laughs> uh you know, because I'm still seeing all of the projects that are stuck at various stages of development. I'm seeing all the things that sh- that if everything had gone smoothly and everything was just clouds and lilies or whatever is good in the world, that, you know, that there's stuff that I'm still trying to get out and still trying to get with artists and get to do this stuff that should have been out three years ago. Uh, the, the 2015 release schedule for LOTFP has just been pathetic, uh, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> You're saying meteoric rise in success. I'm still looking at all the roadblocks. Uh, <laughs> I know why they're there. I know what's happening. And I know some of it is my, uh, my lack of inspiration as a leader and my lack of actual business experience and training and, and all that stuff. And some of it is just, as I said earlier, I, I'm really, I, I'm really, uh, uh, I'm, I'm overextend, I'm intentionally overachieving, if that makes sense mm. as a phrase, that, you know, the stuff that came out easier and faster in the early days was less ambitious, uh, and these days, I'm I'm thinking of everything. Is this conceptually different? Is is the uh, physical qualities of the book? Is that going to be excellent? And you have to plan for that before you hire anybody to do any layout or artwork or editing. You got to think, what's the book going to look like? How is how is this as a physical object going to draw attention on a shelf and blow people away? And how is the content going to be different than anything else that they can get on the market? 
how and, and it's just this whole list of things that I want to be the best and it's just you know, I'm just the guy that works out of the corner of the living room. I mean, those are the, re- the, the I have limited resources to work with, and I try to extend them. And, and it's just, you know, the wanting, wanting the world and the limited resources. Just, you know, they, they, I, I'm, I'm punching my fists together right now to, you know, visualize <laughs> to symbolize <laughs> how things uh, go wrong. So. You know, uh, so this meteoric rise, I think it, it, it helps that I was thinking of publicity and marketing and advertising and all that early on, you know, going to all these conventions and, and making a stink online. And especially when the Grindhouse edition came out and, and saying, oh, look, I've got blood and guts in the artwork. Look at mm. me. Because, um, <laughs> uh, I mean, there are other success stories, Uh you know, Kevin Crawford, uh, I mean, that guy, his company is, uh, as far as sales and revenue, a lot bigger than mine. And, and he, oh, uh, yeah, so, uh, and, and he does it a different way. So when you say that, so when you say that Lamentations is, is in the forefront of stuff, I mean, it's, I'm glad it's here. I'm glad I'm paying my rent with Lamentations. And, you know, I, I hope to grow more and more, but it, it, it is part of a larger, vibrant scene. It's not standing above and towering over anything. It's it, it set up its own weird corner, and I think it owns that weird corner fairly well, but it is still part of a larger scene. And that's, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I'd, I'd argue with that slightly. I mean, I think... Um you've probably done a good enough job of, of building a brand over uh, the last few years. Yeah. And, and with the, um, like I say, with the any success uh, this year, I, I, I think, you know, it, these days, probably when, when most people who weren't necessarily in, you know, heavily involved with the OSR movement tried to think of a, an old-school D&D game, Lamentations would probably be the first one that came to mind, or if, you know, if not, certainly one of the, the, the first few that came to mind. Maybe, but then that's... Hmm. Uh, yeah, but if they're actually looking for an old-school D&D play experience... <laughs> And they sit down with Lamentations. Uh, that's on one hand wonderful because I think a lot of my stuff works best as a surprise. You know, you you sat down to play a game where you're gonna go into this dark hole and fight monsters and 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 deal with magical stuff in order to get gold. To me, that should be a horror setup to begin with. Mm. Uh, but people don't see it that way. It's it's good, clean, fun, and violence or something. So someone that has that standard D&D attitude walking into a Lamentations adventure is the best play report to read. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. I don't know how happy that makes the players. Uh, but, um, yeah, so when you say, when people think of old school D&D... That's kind of misleading if they're going to lamentations for that experience. But I mean, even over and above that, I mean, beyond that kind of shock factor, um, I mean, you touched on the fact that you know, you've you've put some fairly provocative artwork into the games. Uh, you know, as well, you've 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 gone out and you've got some some interesting people involved in writing stuff, like you know Ken Height and Vincent Baker, and of course Zach Smith. 
um, you know, obviously, you know, you've you've set out um, in in all sorts of interesting directions that have have culminated in 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 building something quite unique. I was this. <laughs> did, did you plan this, or has it been a series of happy accidents, or a bit of both? Uh, I think it became the plan. I think leading up to the creation of the Grindhouse edition, which was released on the same day as Vornheim, and that's when, quote-unquote, modern LOTFP came into its own as a distinct entity, I think, rather than just, this is another D&D clone that just has a bit more creepy adventures. Uh, you know, up to that point, I think it was all happy accident. But uh, I think... Uh, once Vornheim came out and I saw how people reacted to that, I was blown away. I was not expecting that. Um, and then later in the year, putting out Carcosa. Mm. And, and just the process of putting together a really deluxe, fancy book for the first time. And dealing with, you know subject matter that was even more unpleasant than the artwork I'd put in the grindhouse edition. Uh, I, I think at that point it, it became a conscious thing that I'm really going to, uh, only go for things that are different. I am not, I'm not going to do filler content that people would be comfortable and used to. It's all going to intentionally be in their face and challenging to some extent Every time out there, there's yeah, I I'm out here to, uh, ruin minds, not to make people feel awesome when they game. <laughs> uh, yeah. In fact, I, I saw an interview, uh, that you did with Zach Smith recently where you were talking about, uh, how you didn't want role-playing games to be fun. Well, <laughs> It's it's for certain values of fun, uh, you know. Uh, it's it's really well. Think of the t- t- for a famous old example, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. When that came out, it wrecked people. I mean, people just could not handle that, and it didn't even show all that much. It was all very clever filmmaking and and, and misdirection that make people think they're graphically seeing people getting chainsawed in half. Yeah. And there, there were some people that absolutely wrecked, and there were some people that looked at that and went, wow, that it opens up an entirely new dimension of imagination. And, you know, so when I say I hate fun, I really hate the, the safe, packaged experience kind of fun. Mm. The one where... You know, all your encounters are balanced, where it's assumed the the player group is going to be successful, where everything there is to make you feel good, and you know your what you do is you know promotes good moral fiber and all of that stuff. I like presenting things where there is no absolute victory condition, where things can absolutely go straight to hell, where it's actually designed to trick players into doing that, and to you know force moral uh, actions in the game, which would be absolutely unconscionable in real life. <laughs> uh, that, to me, is fun, watching players deal with a situation that is out of control. 
and seeing what they do with it, seeing what happens. I consider my job as an adventure writer is to set up a really screwed up situation that has no, it has no end game built into it. So here come the players. What happens? I have no idea that uncertainty, that tension, that chaos is what I consider fun in gaming. And I think that's very different than what a lot of people think of as fun in gaming. So when I say I hate fun, I am not a humorless asshole sitting there going, they will all suffer. I'm just, I enjoy a different kind of fun. I'm, I'm sitting there in glee. Oh my God, they're suffering. And <laughs> yes, uh, I, I, I remember having almost exactly the same conversation with Paul some years back, and uh, I think we're I on the same page. That, Scott, if <laughs> should I jump in here and tell you to remind you of this, Scott? Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, I think yeah. Both Paul and I, at different stages, have expressed almost the same sentiment, word for word. <laughs> <laughs> You were drumming into me. It got to be fun, and, and the games have got to be fun, though, Scott. And, and I, 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 I found myself saying, you know, I don't think they do. And I, and afterwards, I was like, what the hell did I say that for? Am I right? Am I wrong? I don't know why I said that. It just felt like an odd thing to say. So it's interesting to hear your take on it, James. Yeah, I, and I think, well, I think I've, I've expressed the same thing in different ways. Not not talking about not wanting things to be fun, but in terms of wanting to provoke a visceral kind of yeah. reaction from people. Yes, <laughs> and, and and because we're dealing entirely with imagination and fiction, I mean, I already pay taxes. I already try to make decisions that will not absolutely destroy my life. I I, I in real life try to mitigate risk. Says the guy that you know, invest tens of thousands of euros into gore artwork for role-playing games. Uh, you know, I, I want a comfortable, happy life without cruelty, without people pointing guns at me, without me pointing guns at anyone else. So when it comes time for imagination, I don't want anything that resembles my real life. I don't want anything that resembles, you know, trying to achieve goals that I want in real life because that's what real life is for. And so when you go to the imagination, I, I want something different. I want things that not only cannot happen in real life, but I would never want to happen in real life. Yeah. People's creations don't have to mirror themselves. I don't think. Um, yeah. I mean, and it, it's a little bit disturbing because I see this online a bit, you know, the, the people, you know, say they're so frustrated with real life and, and the gaming is their opportunity to be awesome and cool. And I'm thinking, yeah, you're focusing your energy in the wrong place to fix that, man. Uh, work on your real life, make your real life more awesome. The idea that you just give up and you're going to go play pretend and that's where you feel good. That's fucked up. Uh, and the idea that, you know, this is my chance to do all the things I can't do in real life. And these are action games with lots of violence and car chases and guns. And I'm like, really? This is what you really want to do in real life. I mean, it's one thing for me when I'm walking down a street and I'm behind a group of three people that's taking up the whole sidewalk. It's one thing for me to say, I wish I could shoot these motherfuckers. But that's just, you know, that ends as soon as I get around them. 
the idea that you actually want to play out that, you know, think, oh, this is a frustration I have in real life. So here's my chance to get revenge and all the, the, the sidewalk people, <laughs> you know, that, that's something you put in as a gag, as a side reference. It's not something, you know, it's like, OK, this is where I'm going to take out my frustration on the sidewalkers. <laughs> it, it, it's people are I don't know. It's and I think that's a fundamental divide where. People are considering imagination to just be a uh, continuation of real life in some way and something that's really separate. Yeah, I no, I agree. And I, I think there's something there's something cathartic, I think, about you know, getting to experience you know, absolute dark horror in what is fundamentally a, you know, a safe environment, role-playing games. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a release. And it's a release, I think, in the same way that playing escapist games is, but it's just mm. a release for different different sides of yourself. Yeah. No, I'd agree. I mean, you know, you watch, you know, it's... Yeah, I... I and it, it's... You know, I always knew this just because of the movies I like and the other games, you know, video games I like or TV shows that, that it's really difficult for me to find common ground with a lot of people. Uh, but in gaming, it, it's really incredible that, that you, you put out something that's dark, that, that, that is even juvenile and nasty in that way, where you're just being all giggling. Oh, this is really going to bug people. <laughs> and it really bugs them. It's like, holy shit. I mean, that's, you know, I'm imagining some, you know, old 1980s blue hair, uh, you know, TV evangelist type person getting upset. But no, it's the person who who actually likes playing imagination games that freaks out at this. And I, I, I know I know we're dancing around talking about something that's actually happening right now in role playing, yeah. uh, but but it, it's still. I mean, I remember the '80s. I remember police officers coming to my school and showing us videos about the dangers of heavy metal in Dungeons and Dragons. And I remember wow. how absolutely, yeah, how absolutely ridiculous it is that the industry basically caved. And so, you know, there it's it's like the comics code when that came in, that that uh, that retarded development of the comic art for decades. And it's like the same thing happened in role playing. You know, there there was the big stink and people just couldn't say it's imagination. Fuck off that, you know, that and you know, and just like. uh you know, comics had their violent 90s where people realized, wait a minute, we don't have to put up with this shit anymore? Okay, blood everywhere! Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's what I'm doing with role-playing, but no one ever told me it was okay to do it. I just decided, I like horror movies, I like heavy metal, I, I like all this stuff in imagination, this is what I'm going to do. And there are people that realize, yeah, I like that too, so... You know, it, it just amazes me that there's like a pushback with what kind of imagination other people who aren't you and aren't in your group are wanting to play around with. Uh, and, but, you know, if you've read my stuff, you know that I'm intentionally needling at that those people. It, it's They're just being silly. Uh, <laughs> and so I, and I like making silly people angry. It's as simple as that. Uh, so, you know, I, I didn't, 
I didn't make an adventure called Fuck for Satan because I wanted to show how mature and sophisticated I was. <laughs> That's purely on every level, out of the you know a meta level, what the product represents, what what you do to the players in the game is purely fucking with people because it's a, it's a imaginary bullshit stuff <laughs> you know that's the kind of fun you get to have there if you actually go you know to someone and 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 try to convince him oh i just heard your your kid got hit by a car you do that in real life you're a fucking asshole it's, you should get beat into a pulp but you know you're doing something that's explicitly cannot be mistaken for anything other than fiction Play with it. Mm. <laughs> Shit. That's what it's for. That's what fiction's for. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I wouldn't disagree with any of that. Uh, uh, Matt, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that uh, we've been talking over you. Do, do, do you want to jump in, Matt? Yeah, I was, I was thinking about it's come back. The conversations come back a lot to provoking a response or provoking an emotional response to something. Um, a lot of my, this is where I'll be quite. Um, that's what I'm looking for. Honest in this this point, um, a lot of my role playing collection I haven't actually read because I'm hoping that someone at some point will run stuff for me. Um, things like particularly, I want someone to run Scenic Dunsmouth for me, so I've not I've not delved too much into it besides having a look at the front uh, the front and back cover. But one book that I've skimmed through that definitely did provoke a, a response, not not so much of an emotional response, admittedly, but more of a critical response. So um, part of my background is I used to work in DTP. Um, so when I got hold of the original copy of Vornheim, um, the thing that pretty sp- uh, struck me was, boy, pretty much every inch of this book, front, back cover, inside cover, outside cover, has been used for something. Uh, that's one of the things that I don't think you'd find with a lot of other supplements that have gone through a major um, publishing house that they don't have that degree of flair. That it is only something you can do when you have complete creative control over the product. And I think that's that's testament to what you can do with being a um, going down the self-publishing route. Yeah. So. Well, Zach. Well, I don't know if you can call it self-publishing since I didn't write any of it. That 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 Zach's book that I published, but. You know, he, he's got these ideas about information design in how books are laid out. So there's a lot of things in that book that I would never, ever, ever, ever do if I was in charge of how a book looked. Um, or, you know, I mean, there are things like, you know, all of his charts are going to fit on one spread. All of the results are on one spread and there's a hundred items in the table. So the font gets really small. But then I realized you're not supposed to just read it. It's a reference. It's like, you know, when you look up in a dictionary it doesn't matter that the type is really, really small because you're just looking up a specific thing. You're looking at it, and then you're done with it. It's, it's You're not sitting there reading the dictionary page to page having mm-hmm. to deal with this small font size. And Zach, I think, is scary, scary smart when it comes to things like that. And, you know, uh, but I'm also worried that, you know, I see how people react to his stuff, and they're amazed. And... On one hand, I want to start trying to copy him. On the other hand, it's stuff that still feels odd to me. <laughs> you know, it's like, hmm. well, that's Zach's stuff. Zach has control over his stuff, and it makes sense because it's his stuff. And he actually writes and designs with this stuff in mind. And I don't. I just 
when I write stuff, I just write a bunch of shit and then realize, oh crap, what's this going to look like? Uh, so I think I'm, but yeah, uh, that Vornheim and how that looks, that's almost all Zach. Uh, he, he takes a real, uh, interest in how his books look. There are a lot of writers that I've worked with that don't. And so, you know, that's more the layout guy that's going to take more responsibility for that. But then you've got, yeah. So basically what you're, I, I, Yes. Once again, I think I'm uh, babbled around to getting to the point that what you what you meant with self-publishing is that the actual creator has the control to do that. That as the publisher, I, I'm seeing myself as the vessel for the creativity of the people I'm working with. So if they say we want the book to look like this, then yes, I can make that happen because that's what they want and that's how they want to uh, present their book and there's not a reason in the world to say no to them. Oh, so it's You definitely take the aesthetic input of the author beyond beyond the text because I know a lot of other publications have like a, stand, a standard style sheet that they'll want all their publications to look the same. But, yeah, uh, I we- cannot stand that. I, I Oh, God, that annoys me because... Every product, every publication should be unique. Uh, I, that's just what I think. I mean, I, I've got stuff that looks similar because they were written around the same time and then laid out by the same person. And I bite my lip a little bit, but you know, they, uh, you know, because again, that's that's uh, that resources versus uh, aspirations problem there, but. You know, if if something can look different, if something can stand out as its own damn thing, I, w- I will go after that. Uh, I will chase that. I will try to make sure that this isn't just Adventure 42 in a series of 90, that, that it's going to stand up as its own freaking thing. Because what's the point if it's not? Yeah, no, I agree. It, it's definitely something that makes the line stand apart. So, well, line suddenly seems a bit a bit of a weird term yeah, to use because yeah. it implies uniformity. Um, but no, it definitely appeals to me because, as you say, it does make them more more unique. And I think that's reflected in partly on some of the values of these books when they come up on the secondhand market now, once they go out <laughs> of print, that they are incredibly expensive. But then it is because they are sought after for their uniqueness. Yeah. Well, I hope so. I mean, the secondhand market's like, because I'm, well, I see how much people are uh, selling things for, but I don't know that anyone actually buys them at those prices. So, I do. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> okay. What's the most you've spent on a Lamentations book on the secondary market? Seventy-five dollars, I think. For which one? Oh. I'll recognize Bornheim two weeks before it was reprinted. <laughs> no, no, I got I got that one a fair while back. Um, no, the name the name escapes me now. I've got ah, that's it. The um, the Grindhouse edition box set, the the one before ah, okay. the deluxe one. Okay. Yeah. yeah it's, no, Grindhouse is after deluxe. Yeah. Oh, the, it's the first one rather. I thought Grindhouse was first. No. Um, the yeah, the original box set, the one that ah, being okay. being a completist, I obviously want everything of everything. So when I finally tracked it down and managed to get it, but yeah, it was it's either seventy five no seventy five pounds because it was closer to a hundred dollars. Okay. Blimey. Did it still have the pencil and everything in there? Everything, even the bag the dice is in. Yes. 
Nice. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Well, we should probably wrap things up soon, but before we do, uh, c- can I just ask, uh, I mean, we, we've talked a lot about where Lamentations has come from, and you, you've sort of uh, dropped a few hints about the development of uh, new rules and so on, but can you can you give us a hint about what's in the pipeline at the moment? And, oh, uh, a lot of know, what's what, in what the pipeline has been in the pipeline for, in some cases, no exaggeration, years. So I'm dealing with stuff day to day that in some cases is years old. I, I'm it's <laughs> publishing is just weird. Uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, um, it's just getting the, uh, brood mother out, getting towers Two out, getting the referee book out, getting, uh, veins of the earth out. Uh, you know, all this stuff that that's been swirling around forever. Um, James, if if, if uh, you know if you could clear the slate tomorrow and everything you know is, is put out and it's all done, what's your vision for where you want to take Lamentations next? Uh, about it being a, a more purely kind of the historical setting and so on, but what's your kind of you know what's your your vision for it beyond that? My vision was just be more screwed up adventures, more things that more more things that do what other adventures don't do. Uh, and, uh, historical supplements, mm-hmm. stuff that has absolutely nothing supernatural in them whatsoever. That is just, you know, this, this is a historical setting book. Uh, you know, maybe something like the, uh, Osprey book line, just not military focused. Mm. You know, here, here's a book about London, you know, here's, you know, here's a book about Poland and here's a book about, yeah, just, yeah, just uh, give some uh, historical supplements that are gaming focused because that's one thing that I've, I've looking at the shelves here, just dozens and dozens and dozens of university press history books, but it's not gaming ready. Mm. So I think doing that sort of thing that, that could be useful, uh, make it useful for gaming purposes. And then if it doesn't have, you know, all the supernatural stuff in it, you know, I'm also thinking as a businessman that could have, you know, crossover appeal to people who don't give a crap about lamentations. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, that, that's my thing. I, I love working in the historical setting, but, you know, distilling all of this stuff into actual gaming material is still there's still a divide there so you know what i said earlier about oh all the source books that exist for you know historical settings aren't exactly gaming source books Hmm. but yeah doing that and the screwed up weird adventures that uh yeah that's what i want to do excellent well Thank you very much, James. Thank you for your time, and that's <laughs> that. That has been quite an interview. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, good luck editing all of that rambling down to something uh, people want to listen to and will understand. <laughs> oh, that, that's Paul's problem. We just yeah. do it. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thanks again, James. Okay. Once Thanks. again, thank you. We can go back and forth with that all day. Thank you. No, <laughs> no. Thank you. Oh, thank you. 
Oh, and, and James, <laughs> I can't say goodbye without saying hi from Ollie Palmer, who uh, ah. ran our game last night, and he's, uh, he's getting a, a Lamentation scenario printed in the Undercroft. Nice, nice, nice. Oh, yeah, that's, okay. I didn't even talk about the Lamentations fanzines and how cool that is. But Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's no, how you no. know you made it when somebody's doing fanzines of your <laughs> stuff. And it's like, holy yeah. shit. <laughs> Yeah, no, we'll have to mention those on the episode. No, I think you'll know when you've made it, James, when so, some sad loser goes and kills a load of people and then the tabloids come into his home and they find a copy of Lamentations <laughs> on his desk. And like, you know, this guy's the devil. Oh, no, you, you say that, but I'm actually <laughs> hoping that, you know, I, I do a line of T-shirts now and I, I'm i thinking, okay, there are serial killers out there and serial killers <laughs> are going to be serial killers. They need shirts. Why not one mine? <laughs> well, there's a niche for you. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's some very focused market research. <laughs> Think of the publicity, though. I, I, you know, I dream of going on, you know, Hannity or something and on Fox News. You know, something we're saying, what is this filth you're peddling to our children? <laughs> and just confess to absolutely everything they accuse me of. <laughs> oh, yeah, you should, you should do a T-shirt that just has a back print on it or something like, I went on a murder spree and all I got was this lousy T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, and I don't, and I, I don't know why I don't do it in normal role-playing conversations you know i'll defend myself try to talk sense to actual role players because i think you're supposed to be imaginative intelligent what the hell is wrong with you but and then you know act like an asshole to outsiders uh, <laughs> i don't know why i just don't agree to everything oh oh you 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 find this to be uh racist and misogynistic and oh yeah that's exactly <laughs> what i was trying to do <laughs> but no, I never do that. I don't know why. Maybe I should start. <laughs> on that bombshell. <laughs> okay. Well, che cheers, everyone. And uh, yeah, <laughs> let's see what we can do with all these. <laughs> Talk to you guys later. Okay, all right. Thanks, James. Yeah, bye. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. Blimey, that man can talk. Sure can. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. I, and I don't... I don't think we can exactly take the higher moral ground here looking at the runtime of some of our episodes recently. <laughs> I think we've said it all, so that only remains for me to say good night. And cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello. Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm -hmm.